Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. And so the seven letters to the, to the seven churches is what we're going to start today with the church at Ephesus. And I told you, I'm going to start with the kingdom of God is invincible. And we need to know that. But that, like we've already stated, the, the enemy, for whatever reason, in his foolishness, in his arrogance, I would assume, because it's because of arrogance and pridefulness that caused him to be kicked out of heaven in the first place, he thinks he could still destroy the church. Well, can I tell you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved the fact that death does not exist for God's people or God's church. The enemy will not overcome it. The church is invincible as long as the church is obedient. Now that's a pretty big, that's a pretty big uh, asterisk. But it's still an asterisk. It's if it is obedient. How many churches have you seen, physical building churches, that have existed that no longer exist? The reason that they no longer exist is although the big C church is invincible, each individual church is accountable to the obedient command and calling of God, which is to glorify God according to the larger umbrella and all the things that are involved in glorifying the God in the smaller umbrellas. Everybody okay? And so the church is invincible. Jesus said this to, to Peter when he declared that he is the Christ. He said the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You know what that means? You can look it up in the Greek. This is what that means. It means... The gates of hell will not overcome it. Ain't no sense in making it complicated. The God that we serve is bigger than the enemy that's trying to destroy it. And because of that, we can stand boldly and confidently and declare Him as Lord and Savior. Amen? And so we're going to talk about the churches, and I want to talk about the churches and all of those things. I just want to start by telling you all the wiles of the enemy, all the stuff that he tries to do, whether... It'd be spiritual or physical. Are futile, his efforts are futile and lead to his own destruction, not yours. I want you to stand boldly and confidently with me and understand that his wiles, everything that he attempts to do, will fail. Not you, unless you're in disobedience. And then you, like the church, because you are the church, are invincible. Amen? I'm trying to build some confidence, but at the same time make you understand that without obedience, there's no promise of life. Life is a consequence of obedience. Like Pastor Rick and Pastor Leonard have said several times, blessing follows obedience. Eternal life follows obedience. The life of the church follows obedience. And I could go on and on and on. Everything follows what? Obedience. Okay, so we're all on the same page. So we're going to talk about these seven churches, but why these seven churches? I touched on it just a little bit last, last week, but simply put, these seven churches, because these churches, the number seven being the number of perfection, is a perfect representation of the typical church. Now, that didn't say that it's seven perfect churches. I said it's a perfect representation of the struggles, the trials, what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong of the church through all times. It's a perfect representation of where we've gotten it right and where we've got it wrong. 
A lot of people want to tell you that the seven churches exist as a timeline, that the church at Ephesus was the church in the first century. And then the next church was the establishment of the Catholic Church. And the next church is the establishment of the Reformation. They try to jam it into this timeline. I'll tell you, there's no, there's no timeline. This is just where we get it right and where we get it wrong. Besides that, if you, if you were to subscribe to this timeline understanding, you'd have to completely cut out the church in Asia, which, where, which is where it started in the first place throughout history, in Africa. You'd have to cut out the history of the church in those regions. This is just a simplification of what God, Jesus Christ himself, sees both good and bad in every church. Why does he bother telling us that, the good and the bad? Because he wants us to get it right. And so let's not overcomplicate it. Let's just make it what it is. The church should be commended and corrected. Every church has some commendation and some correction. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the same uh, what's the word, pattern throughout this whole series, this whole seven churches. And the pattern goes like this. It's the correspondent first. In every letter, he identifies himself. I'm Christ Jesus. And then he says something about who he is that I'm going to talk about in just a moment. There's a correspondent. And then there's a correction or a commendation. I'm sorry. He tells them, this is what you're getting right. And then after that, there's a correction. And after the correction, there's a comfort. But if you'll just overcome, you shall inherit. This is a loving God. How, this is how loving parents correct their kids. Listen, I know this is how you're getting it right, but just know that you're messing up in this area. But if you'll get it right, then this awaits you. You know, that's the difference between discipline and punishment and abuse. Discipline has an objective in mind a point of restoration in mind. Abuse has no such mindful attempt at, future, at the future. It just, it's just abuse for the sake of abuse. But correction, certainly the way we should do it and the way God modeled to us is what's the, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? How do you fix it so that you might be restored back to your rightful place? And this is the church in Ephesus in regard to those things. First things first, he talked about himself. Let me just read the letter. It's only seven verses. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. So the Holy Spirit is telling God, Jesus himself, is telling, telling John to write this letter to Ephesus. The one, capital O, that's Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you. So he's given the commendation, now he's about to give the correction. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember, I told you the big C church will always exist. It is invincible. But the individual church can be removed. The individual church has no such promise 
of invincibility without obedience. Unless you repent. Yet this you do have. And so he even returns back to the commendation. Yet this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Isn't it good to hate what God hates? He says, he who says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the present or in the paradise of God. Amen. So let's talk about it. The only thing I'm going to tell you about the city of Ephesus, and it's, I'm going to tell it to you because it matters in regard to the commendation and who he's talking to and why, is the Ephesian church was, was the church that existed, of course, in Ephesus, which was the city at the intersection of four major roads that ran through Asia. And so because it was multicultural, everything was tolerated. They tolerated every kind of vile activity, every kind of idolatry, every kind of sin. As a matter of fact, the, the biggest false goddess, Artemis or Diana, was worshipped in Ephesus. It was the largest building in Ephesus. That temple had up to 12,000 prostitute priestesses who existed for no other reason than for people to pay to worship. And they worshipped through the sexual idolatry with those priestesses. This is the kind of vileness that the, the Ephesian church existed in. They tolerated anything and everything except for, like the world we live in today, the truth. This is okay, don't worry about that. This, this comes from that region. We need to respect who they are. We don't need to, we need to love them. We don't need to give place to them. Don't move the ancient boundaries is what the Bible says. We have gotten to a place where we've allowed the ancient boundary to be moved and now we don't know where to put it back because it's been moved. The problem with boundaries is once you move them, you want to move them again and then you want to move them again and then you want to move them again and again and again until ultimately you're so lost in the weeds you don't even know what property belongs to you. Can I tell you, don't compromise the property that belongs to you. And the Ephesian church apparently wasn't willing to do that. And so he had great words for them. But first he declared himself as he, he, he discussed that him as the correspondent. This is what he said. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. This is interesting to me. I, I didn't realize this until I started really studying the seven churches. But each of the seven churches in the correspondent portion has a piece of how John in chapter 1 described Jesus. And so, but he just uses a piece based on that individual church's need to express himself. Let me give you an example. Pergamum, because it's the, it's the obvious example, the most obvious example. Pergamum, to them he said this, and to the angel of the Lord in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What did we say was the sharp two-edged sword? The word of God, the truth. Right, And if you'll read that letter, he declared himself, he introduced himself as that because the threat that they were under is that they were starting to sway from the truth. And so he uses the description John gave him to explain to the church where they were messed up and how he was the king and should have lordship in those areas. And so what is he telling the Ephesian church by saying the seven, I am the one that holds the seven stars 
walks among the seven lampstands. He said, listen to me, I love you. I am intimately familiar with you. I, I have established the church and I have established flesh, leaders of flesh in those churches. And I examine them and I look at them. And you've got to trust that I lead them and that if they're not following, I will remove them. This is, this is, the, this is a serious thing for, for church leaders, for church pastors and, and laymen to know that God examines us. He holds us in his hand and looks at us and that he walks among the seven lampstands. Wonder what he's doing walking between seven lampstands. This is, this is how I, I picture it in my head. He's walking. I used to work before I got a law enforcement job for a few months at Rock 10, which is a box factory out on Harbin Drive. And there was an engineer in the, in the warehouse they, would, they had these big machines that folded boxes all day long, and I'd just take them off the line. But every machine had a million moving parts that folded the box based on how the engineer set it up to, to fold the box. And that engineer would walk around every machine all night long for 12 hours a day during his shift and go, he'd write something down, he'd make a correction here if the, the wheel was starting to track off a little bit. And I see Jesus walking amongst his churches that way, examining the church, assessing the church, making sure the church is running like he intends for it to run. Because it's his church. Man, it would be so much easier if I could just say what I wanted to say when I wanted to say it, but I can't. I shared with a brother I had coffee with this morning. <clears throat> he was telling me about how he, he really enjoyed It's Okay to Be Broken series. You know, I almost didn't preach that series. I wrote that whole series and almost threw it away and started over with something else. But the Spirit of God told me, you know, you need to do that. And I've had multiple people say that series, God used that series to really get in their business. But it's not what I wanted to do. But God's not. But God's watching me. God's watching you. God's assessing his church. And I, I, find, that to be, I find that to be beautiful. Because you know, what, you know what that engineer at Rock 10 used to do? As he walked around, he would see that wheel start to get a little off. And he'd make small corrections. If he let that wheel go and not pay it attention, and then let it go the next day, it's a matter of time before that wheel falls off and the whole machine breaks down. I'd, I praise God for a God that sees me in my little wobble and doesn't allow my wheels to fall off. And God sees his church in its little wobble and tries to make sure that the wheel doesn't fall off. Isn't that awesome? He is the one that holds the seven stars and walks amongst the seven lampstands. And I can tell you, if I didn't tell you anything else than that, I think that's enough because Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The greatest, the I've told you this before, it's the greatest theological statement in all the world, and none of us have grabbed a hold of it yet. So this is the correspondent, that he sees us, that he loves us, that he's intimately involved with us. But not only is he the one that is intimate with, with us, is according to verse 2, he, he then says, I know, which is an indication of what I've just told you. 
He said, I know your deeds and your toll and your perseverance. And so he starts this commendation. He said, I know your deeds and your toll and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to rest or detest those who call themselves apostles. And if they are not, you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And then he jumps to six. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he says, listen, I see you. I see the good things you're doing. And he gives that commendation. He starts with what they're getting right. He said, I recognize that you are true workers. That it doesn't matter what's going on in your society. Remember the environment that they're in. That you toil, which means labor until the point of sweat and exhaustion. I see that the world is stacked against you. I see that you're not scared to put in the work, though. I see you out there tilling the ground, busting up the clod, planting the seeds, watering it, trimming it. I see what you're doing. I know that from sunup to sundown, you toil for the work of God, and you are not unnoticed. This is who the church needs to be. We need to be a church that toils. We need to be a church that never gives up, which is what he says. I, I see your perseverance. They, pers they persevered. They were patient in trying times. Anybody living in trying times? Maybe society ain't going exactly like you was hoping it would go. Maybe it's so far outside of what you, how you thought it should go, you would have never pictured it as it is right now five years ago, ten years ago. Maybe even one year ago. But you know what? The book of James tells us that we persevere because in our perseverance we are made perfect. And he said, I see you. I see that you work. I see that you struggle. I see that you, you work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. But you know what else I see? I see that you're going to be perfect in the end. That you're going to persevere that you are a people of perseverance, that you never give up, that you deal with evil amongst them. It says you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Can I tell you, one of the, I just did a sermon on, um, what is the, about false fruit I can't remember the name of the sermon now but just pay attention to the people around us make sure that people don't what's the name of that sermon baby uh, anyway uh, false prophets maybe anyway regardless he said pay attention to the people that are amongst you not everybody amongst you is for you not everybody in your boat should be in your boat and honestly, some people in your boat may even need to be in your boat, but they're in the wrong seat, holding the wrong paddle, rowing in the wrong direction. So you need to test the spirits amongst you. My wife is great at this. She has a discernment, mess, messes me up. She'll be off. You watch out for so-and-so. That's not going to end well. First time they walk into church, and I'm all, just love them. I'm all over here trying to be the pastor. 
Just love them. And she goes, no, you can love them if you want to. And I'm going to love them. But they're going to hurt somebody. And nine times out of ten, or ten times out of ten, she's right. But you know what's going to happen the next time she tells me that? Just, I'm going to say, just love them. But my point is, we need to test the spirits amongst us. Who is for us? Who is against us? It's a part of the reason why I prayed the prayer that I prayed. I didn't say, God, keep the world out of this church. I said, if there's any world in this church, remove it. I am convinced that there is, there's at least one person, I would say, and I, I don't know who that person is, and I, but I'm convinced that there's at least one person that comes here for no other reason than to watch me fail. I've had people text me and says, man, you've got to get it right. People that I've known for years, you've got to get it right because there are literally, there are many people in this community can't wait for you to fail. Those people could just easily walk inside of these doors and poison this population. The Bible tells us to watch out for them, to watch out for them, and the, and the Ephesian church was doing that, watching out for them. Because they're dangerous. False teachers are dangerous. Paul, I love this. The last time he got to talk to uh, the Ephesian church, this is the last thing he said to them. In Acts chapter 20, he said, Be on guard for yourselves. He had just said, I'm about to leave and you're never going to see my face again. He said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Did you catch that? He's talking to the church. He's not talking to a pastor. This isn't a letter to Timothy or Titus. He's talking to the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. You're responsible not just for you, but for the people around you. Well, I'm a nobody in the church. You're a somebody to somebody. Anyway, that, was, that wasn't in my notes. That's just good. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. This isn't something I can do just once a year. This isn't something I can do semi-annually, or we can do semi-annually. We have to be on the alert at all times. Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years that I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What, what built them up? What sanctified them? Not Paul. Not the ministry Paul was doing, but the word that Paul spoke over them. So I said, I, don't, I prefer that you like me. If we could just get that attitude. Are you being fed here? You're being fed here. Why do you need to like me? Wow, that hurts me a little bit. Because <laughs> I want everybody to like me, but it's true. But anyway, I commend you to God and to the word and his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. And so he goes, continues on, but he says, pay attention. You have been, Jesus tells them, you've been spiritually discerning. You've watched that for false teachers. Matthew 7, 15 says, the world is like those false apostles are like ravenous wolves. Second John 10 says we shouldn't even give room to them. Second John verse 10 is the strongest word of correction 
or teaching regarding false prophets that I, I've, I've ever heard. If you'll go and read it, this is, this is essentially what it said. Don't, don't greet them. Don't even, don't invite them into your house. Don't even say hello to them. For to do that, to greet them, is to partake in what they're doing. So I, I, got, I firmly believe, I don't know that we ever will, but it probably ought to, if it's found out that someone's a false teacher here, we should Xerox a copy of their face and hand it out to the ushers at the door and say, if you see this guy, we're not supposed to give him a greeting. You need to send him away. Otherwise, if we know that and still partake with them, we are, according to 2 John chapter or verse 10, <coughs> we are partaking in their evil. Now, people don't like that. But it's okay. You don't have to like me. You have to be sanctified by the word. And Jesus was telling them that you've done that. You've, you've been spiritually discerning. You've opposed the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nobody knows what that is. The Nicolaitans are spoken of a couple of times in the scripture, always negatively. So I'll just tell you, the Ephesian church hated what Jesus hated. Well, if we could just do that, if we could just boil all this down to, let's just hate what Jesus hates. Let's love what Jesus loves. You know, the, 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 the most vile person you've ever met, Jesus died for them biggest drunkard you've ever been around Jesus died for them the worst addict that you've ever been around Jesus died for them and if we hate what God hates which we should then we also have to love what God loves and so we don't judge them we declare to them the truth believing that God will draw himself to them they discredited the Nicolaitans. They never said anywhere that they mistreated them, just that they hated the sin that they had. And why did they do it? At the end of the commendation, he tells them why they did it. You have done it for my name's sake. Mm. That's good. Verse 3, and your perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. Everything we do, again, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's, it's the truth. Everything we do is to glorify the name of God, which is a fancy word of saying to make bigger the name of God. Not that we can make the name of God bigger, literally, but that you know what? When I walk as Christ walked, the people that don't know him see Jesus bigger than they saw him before they met me before they met you <clears throat> and so our job is to do what we do for Jesus' namesake God's namesake amen that's the reason why he does everything he does that'll be the reason why we do everything we do your salvation even isn't for you as much as it is to show the glory of God and how awesome he is but then he gives a correction Verse 4 and 5, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. 
It's pretty simple. He says, again, going back to the engineer analogy, he says, but there is a wobble in you. I do see a flaw in you. That you do all that you do. You do the work that you do. You love the way you love. You hate what I hate. You, You endlessly persevere. You do all the things that you do, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're doing it because you're feel led to do it out of obligation because it makes you feel good to do it because it gives you place in your church to do it there's a thousand motivations why people do what they do and Jesus doesn't specifically say what they were doing to demonstrate that their love had gone out but that their love had gone out and he holds that against them everything we do must be done with the motivation of love 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you guys know it is the love chapter. The first three verses are always overlooked because everybody wants to immediately jump to love is kind, love is patient, love is all this. But in verse 3, he tells us something incredibly important. This is what he said. Paul says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I give away everything I have, and if I surrender my body to be burned, So even if I die at the stake, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It doesn't matter what I have. It doesn't matter what I give up to and including my own life. It doesn't matter how I serve. It doesn't matter matter anything that you do. If you don't do it so people can come to know Jesus, your love ain't right. And how do we get there? We get to that place because we allow time to dull our passion we're all yeah you know this is just this is what I do on Sunday this is what I do on Thursday this is what I do on Saturday this is what I do whenever this is this is just what I do and it makes me feel good to do it ain't about you though about Jesus can we agree with that and so our motivation has to be right John Wesley said it in regard to to the passion in him. Somebody asked him, they said, how do you feel, because he was feeling fields full of people, open air preaching. He says, how do you get people to come listen to you preach? He understood passion. He said, I don't know. I let my, I light myself on fire and people come watch me burn. That's what he said. It's one of my favorite quotes. So many of us have allowed our spires to go out. We need to reclaim that passion. Pastor, how do I do that? How do I ensure that I'm not in the place of the Ephesian church? One of the greatest sermons my pastor my pastor has ever preached was about how to ensure your passion stays where it should be. And he said, communion with God through prayer and worship. Reading of his word. And if if while you're doing those things, you you can, if you're physically able to, go back to the place, the physical place where your passion was originally lit and be silent in that space. So there's a church, there's a Cornerstone Church, is a church I came from, the church I got saved in. Several times a year, I'll drive from Lebanon to Cornerstone Church for no other reason than in the dark of that sanctuary, climb up into the tier and sit in the seat I was saved in 
and just pray and thank God that he lit a fire in me in that seat. And if you'll do that, it may be a little spark. But allow the Holy Spirit to breathe on it. Because a little spark will turn into a couple sparks. And then ultimately, you're going to be standing in that field on fire. And people are going to come watch you burn. And so he gave this correction. But then he said this. Then he gave a comfort. In verse 7, he says, And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who here has an ear to hear what God has to say to them? To him who overcomes, overcomes this love problem, I will grant you, grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he said, I'm going to let you eat of the tree of life, which is a promise of eternity. Because man was banned from paradise so that he wouldn't eat of that tree. That's the tree of eternal life. So he's telling you, listen, if you'll just overcome, if you'll blow on that spark, reignite your passion, don't stop doing the stuff you were doing because your love should motivate you to do stuff. But blow on that spark and I will promise you as you overcome eternal life. Because you can. Because you're an overcomer. I love that he tells every church this. If you overcome. Because he knows by his spirit you are an overcomer. Listen to me, church. You are an overcomer. You don't know my life. I don't have to know your life. I know my life. Without the spirit of God, I would have overcome nothing. You are an overcomer and 1 John 5, 4 and 5, he says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes the world. And this is the victor that has overcome the world, our faith, which is the one who overcomes the world. But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me, let me deconstruct this. Let me go backwards through it. He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world through his faith because you were born of God this is the promise that he gives the Ephesian church this is the comfort that he gives the Ephesian church we are overcomers because God's grace and power have overcome the enemy already and if we can just remember that our love should stay right amen